Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to have not one, but two guests with me today. One is Chris Wigley, the CEO of Genomics England, as well as the senior responsible owner for the NHSX COVID data cell, which is responsible for providing timely and accurate data to the UK government during the coronavirus crisis. The second guest is Dr. Richard Scott, who's the clinical lead for rare diseases at Genomics England, and he's also a consultant clinical geneticist at Great Ormond Street. So we're going to try to cover a lot of ground today because Genomics England uh, in particular has played a central role in the rare disease whole genome sequencing strategy in the UK for a number of years. And now they're starting to play a very central role in a recently announced large-scale COVID-19 human genetics project. So Chris and Richard, I'm uh, very excited to have you and thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Pleasure. Great to be here. Great. So I'd like to start, if we could, by discussing Genomics England's role in leading the NHS into a new era of genomic medicine. So, Richard, I was wondering if, um, given that you've spent much of your professional career working with patients with rare diseases, if you could just describe what has changed in the past 10 years or so, um, especially as a result of next generation sequencing. It's extraordinary, actually. It's just changed so completely my my day-to-day job. So, specifically, if you think what I was doing 10 years ago, I would have been sat in clinic, I knew what next generation sequencing was, and I knew some some really cool out there researchers were beginning to pilot its use. And to be honest, it's why I decided to take the sort of career I did. I knew it was coming, but I couldn't access it. So I used to have to sit there in clinic and try to do, if you like, old fashioned medicine, where you think, okay, let's ask all the questions, let's work out what's wrong with this person and let's try to be really clever let's let's like be like house and come up with the one yeah <laughs> really rare diagnosis that no one's come up with and target the testing and what was really hard you think specifically for example children with epilepsy i see a lot of children with epilepsy and maybe more complex uh, problems and the the question is what, what's wrong with them and i probably knew of five ten maybe 20 genes that might be the cause and I'd have to guess one gene at a time to try and help those families find the find the answers that they needed. I couldn't even access all of those tests. And then you fast forward 10 years and the, the techs moved on, the, the science, but also um, the way that NHS England have, have implemented next generation sequencing in real healthcare. Suddenly now knowledge has exploded. So there are there are literally hundreds more genes that we know about that could be the cause of these conditions. And now that we can access them through next generation sequencing and and from later this year, NHS England's genomic medicine service using our um, whole genome um, platform um, will be there and in front of me and and able to, to answer these questions completely turns things on its head. Yeah, well, when I was um, when I was doing my PhD, I worked on severe developmental disorders. I worked as part of a research project called Deciphering Developmental Disorders. And when I was uh, I was working on non-coding variation, and I worked a little bit on the Hundred Thousand Genomes project uh, at the start. But um, the questions when I was doing my PhD was always about at what point will it become cost effective to do this for every child with a with a rare disease? And it seems like the time, at least in the UK, is is now. Um, so, Chris, I was wondering if, if you could expound on that a little bit. You came into the role of CEO at Genomics England as a relatively fresh pair of eyes because you have actually more of a data analytics background. Um, so you're previously at Quantum Black, which I believe is a, a part of McKinsey. 
as the UK for the next decade starts to adopt, as Richard alluded to, a genomic medicine service where I believe the aspiration is that every uh, child, certainly to start with, and hopefully every person with an undiagnosed genetic condition will get access to whole genome sequencing. What what are you expecting to see and, and lead as part of Genomics England over the next 10 years going forward? It's a very big question. And I think we can expect to see as much change in the next 10 years as we've seen in the last 10 years, if not more, given the shape of exponential curves and so on. And I was really excited to join Genomics England in October last year, because it's a really exciting time for us. We've sequenced 100,000 genomes. In fact, because these things get momentum, we've now sequenced about 125,000 genomes. We've passed the results of those back to the NHS, and the uh, NHS genomic medicine centres are pretty much there with getting the primary results of that back to the participants, which is huge in terms of new diagnoses, um, new insights into those uh, people's lives. And so we're now looking to the next chapter. You know, the, the first chapter of GEL has been really about how do we get to that finish line? How do we get to the, the 100,000 units project? And what we're now looking at is how do we scale beyond that? And we think about that in two arenas, really. Firstly, in the clinical arena, and that's the genomic medicine service that um, Richard's been uh, talking about. Um, but also the research agenda is a huge part of this as well, because and those effectively form two uh, big services. So there's a service on the healthcare side, which is uh, patient, doctor, sample, sequence, um, interpretation, and the return of results. Um, but we can also extract all of the data from that service, critically de-identify it, um, aggregate it, make it available to researchers in the research environment, and they can continue working on uh, making new discoveries and pushing this, um, this field forward. And then critically, we can feed those results back into healthcare. Um, so we end up with what we kind of call the infinity loop, this sort of clinical circle where we're feeding data into research, and then this research circle where we're feeding insights back into healthcare. And really scaling that is um, what the next chapter of GEL is all about and having impact on um, patients, making the benefits of genomic medicine available to everyone. And that's a data and analytics challenge, really, I think, um, which yeah. I think is hence the relationship with uh, Quantum Black and so on. We're already tipping 40 petabytes of data today. Um, that's only going to get more particularly as we start experimenting with things like long reads, which are about five times the size of a, um, of a short read uh, uh, genome. And equally, it's about algorithms. Um, if we think about what the bioinformatics teams are doing, they're doing data science, and they're trying to, um, as, you know, if we think about Richard's every day, they're trying to automate a lot of the heavy lifting for the clinical geneticist um, out of the process so that the clinical geneticist can focus on the most important insights um, and what those mean for the patient rather than, doing all of that heavy lifting and, and machine learning and AI are really going to help us do that um, ever better as we look forward. So yeah, wherever you see cost curves coming down in the way that you've talked about, you see extraordinary things happening. And you know, I think we're seeing that in genetics at the moment. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned uh, a couple new technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, also long read sequencing. What, what other kinds on the research side of your infinity loop what other sorts of things are you all interested in, in exploring? RNA sequencing, epigenetics, um, or are you looking at new applications beyond rare disease and cancer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're very heavily involved um, in the COVID response, which is, of course, infectious disease rather than uh, rare disease or cancer. Yeah. 
I mean, we sort of have a joke that the name Genomics England is actually not a great name for what we do because there's a problem with both of the words that we're not just focused on England and we're not just focused on genomics. Um, and um, you, you've touched on some of the kind of multi-omics elements there around um, functional genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and there's, in fact, some really interesting research has just come out of the uh, research, of researchers working in the research environment recently about colon and bowel cancer and um, metabolomics uh, playing into that. Um, so we're working with our partners, both in academia and industry, on pushing the boundaries on all of these fronts. And that's really coming into sharp focus um, in this uh, program that we have around trying to understand the genomic architecture of COVID-19 in order to get to biomarkers that could help us to stratify uh, different parts of the population for different risk profiles, start to identify biomarkers for vaccine and therapeutic development, um, and start to lay down some of the infrastructure for so that we're ready for, for future pandemics as well. Great. I mean, maybe we could jump right into that, um, because it was only announced a couple days ago, the, the scale that you all are planning, I believe it's 20,000 people with severe um, responses or moderate to severe, and then another 15,000 who've had mild COVID. If you kind of focus on the, the high-level goals of this, what, what's most important to you all? Is it understanding individual response? Is it new drug development? Is, is it uh, all of the above? It would be great to hear um, you know, in, in three months' time, six months' time, however long it may be, what, uh, what you're expecting to see from this. Yeah. Well, got, I'll, I'll maybe talk about the high-level goals and then I'll let Richard talk a bit about how we're getting after that. So, You've touched on one of the key points of the design, which is this stratified cohort. So um, severe, uh, very mild, ideally even asymptomatic, and then uh, general population. And the more we can start to understand the um, the markers that differentiate those uh, those parts of the stratified cohort, then um, the more powerful it will be. And it's it's really to get back to those those questions of the immediate application in terms of uh, risk profiling, then therapeutic and drug discovery. Um, and then sort of infrastructure preparation. But um, Richard, maybe you could say a few words about sort of how we're doing that, the different channels and the, um, you know, where we hope to get to. Yeah, so um, we've partnered with a consortium called Genomic, who are experts in um, uh, critical care and what, what makes pe- particular people get sick. And it's a question that's not new to COVID. It's been their flu, but also other um, severe sort of insults to the body. There are there are, they're questioned about why certain people respond in certain ways. And there's good reason and there's precedent to suggest that, that some of that is genomic. Um, so we partnered with them and already they have a network of now it's 180 or so intensive care units across the country who are recruiting. We've already um, recruited 2,200 participants who've got severe disease who've ended up on intensive care. And alongside them, as Chris says, we're going to look at control populations. So amongst the 100,000 Genomes Project, we've got 80,000 um, participants' genomes that we can look at. Um, they're constitutional, they're germline genomes that we can look at as control groups who are diverse in terms of their um, demography, including ethnicity, which is going to be really important for us because we know um, from what's coming out that there, there is there's a multiple different influences. And what we need to do to make sure the science works and we address those questions is to make sure that our different groups of participants are representative of, of the patterns of disease that we can see on the ground. And we can see that there is a disproportionate representation of people from minority ethnic backgrounds. And we're also 
going to be recruiting 15,000 people, as Chris said, with, with mild, very mild disease or, in fact, um, asymptomatic. And those will be people who might self-identify, so in fact, people can register their interest in the study on our website already. We'll also, as the antibody programs take shape and scale up, we'll be looking to identify people who've got a positive antibody response, so they've had uh, an infection with the virus but have been very mildly affected. And again, in that group, it will be really crucial that we match uh, everything that we can about the people who have severe disease so that we've got a really fair comparison and that we're inclusive in who we're looking at. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the antibodies because I would imagine that that's played a slightly challenging role in how you design the study because testing has been spotty different parts of the country. I suspect for the severe cases, you're probably not too worried about it because more people are being tested. Are you planning to do at-home antibody testing or or working through clinical networks, or is that, that part kind of still to be determined depending how the different in piece of infrastructure play out? Our plan is, is broadly to, to hook into programs that are developing and will develop at, at really considerable scale rather than us uh, ourselves doing an antibody program. Um, and we're, we're talking to a number of um, groups um, sort of, uh, who are setting up sizable programs um, and sort of working alongside them. Uh, and there's sort of mutual gain, obviously, that the, the prime question, the first question we've talked about is why do certain people um, develop really severe um, disease? But also tied to that is why do some people develop an antibody response that peters out after two months, three months? That's not right. the, the, the question that's on the front of the papers today. Um, but it is a crucial question for us all to get out of this and to understand how we can perhaps develop vaccines that stimulate a really good and prolonged response understanding that the genomic influences of that will be crucial. Yeah. And Rich, Richard said a really important word, though, which is why. Um, and it feels like this is the right time in the curve here to be asking that question. And a lot of the very rapid response work um, has been effectively looking at correlations. Um, so there are correlations that Richard has mentioned about um, Black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, groups around obviously the age, uh, different age cohorts. Um, there's more controversial ones like smokers versus non-smokers and so on. And we can start to see some of these correlations. But the big question is why? Why are these things happening? Um, and so the intent of the study really is to try and unpick some of the causal factors that lead to these correlations that we're seeing so that we can then plan a much more targeted response to try and address those causal factors as well as getting sharper insights to be able to kind of use those insights to help society live in a you know, marathon of dealing with this disease um, because we can't all stay on furlough and in lockdown forever. We need to get into a process of managing risk um, over the next 6, 12, 18 months rather than purely avoiding risk. Yeah, I was actually going to ask kind of what time frame it is that you all are thinking on, because I can see a very near-term potential benefit, which is if you can identify genetic markers of, of high risk, then you you could potentially counsel people that carry those genetic markers to stay home, continue to isolate. Um, but there's also the long-term goal of, uh, my understanding is we've never, as a, as a world, developed a coronavirus vaccine, right? So this is a, a moonshot in one of the truest senses of, of the world. So you're also thinking towards the long term of how do we build the 
the scaffold of data that's required to to develop something that's never been developed before. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think in the sh- you know I keep using this analogy, which um, Patrick, you're definitely too young to remember, but like in the in the late '90s <laughs> when people had like 9.6k modems, you know, it would take ages to download an image, and initially you would get the sort of the blurry image and then the slightly sharper image and then eventually like the crystal sharp image. Um, and I think that's very much the approach that we're taking with this program is that we need to um, be recruiting as fast as we can. Richard mentioned we've already um, got over 2,000 people through the um, through the very severe channel. We've, um, we've had over 1,000 volunteers in a few days through the mild uh, channel. So we're really pushing ahead with that as fast as we can. In an ideal world, you would start to derive some insights from um, from those, those sort of early parts of the cohort, but then you, we need to keep refining them and making sure that the cohort overall is appropriately powered to actually get to robust insights um, as those, you know, as that picture comes into focus. One thing that I've been keeping up to date a lot with because of my interest in rare disease and, and pediatric disease is this uh, phenomenon of Kawasaki syndrome like characteristics maybe richard i'm i imagine you probably have been following this as well so there's a an observation that um children are developing a rare condition or or symptoms similar to a rare condition called kawasaki syndrome at a higher rate in high COVID areas and i imagine given you all central role in rare disease diagnostics this might also be an area of interest is, is that something you've thought about or, or considered as well yes it is uh, and so we, we're looking broadly across everyone who gets severe disease and those children who are getting the, the kawasaki like illness are, are part of that and in fact we'll be i guess looking at two levels first of all a lot of our learning will come almost at the cohort level where you see big differences and and for any one individual in the cohort there won't be that there's a particular answer to why they got it it will be that they were at greater risk it may be, particularly among children, that there are certain children who have a, a rare disease which put them at very high risk and uh, almost out of keeping with the, the, the rest of the, the group. We just don't know whether that's the case yet for that, the group of children getting Kawasaki disease. It's a, a condition that lots of work has been done over the years on the genetics, and at the moment we're still really scratching at the surface. It may be that these children are, are at the sort of the the young end of the same spectrum that we're seeing in adults in truth but we can only know by by looking and so we'll be taking both the sort of cohort level approach but also zooming in on those kids and looking in with a fine tooth comb if you like at at, um the their individual genomes and in fact those are their um, parents alongside them to see whether we can see individual um signals there yeah, actually, you mentioning the parents um, jogged my memory that the UK Biobank has um, recently announced that they're going to be enrolling uh, children and grandchildren even of the members of the UK Biobank as part of a COVID project. Are you all looking at, at family member-based studies? Or are you collaborating with the UK Biobank on, on these in any way? We're looking predominantly at, a, at, at the sort of cohort level. We're looking in these very young um participants we are looking to also recruit their their family members and then we're also in active discussion with uk biobank um, about how we can how our cohorts can sit best alongside each other to to inform each other's analyses and this is this is very much a team sport you know this is this is not going to be solved by one cohort in one country we we're looking for for answers that that should be relevant um globally 
Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I did want to touch on as well that's COVID-related as well as Genomics England is the relationship that you all have with the participants in the Genomics England uh, or 100,000 Genomes project. Um, I think it's quite unique amongst especially large-scale research projects. I mean, the fact that you have a 15,000-person goal that's a direct public outreach, I think, speaks towards this. Um, I think I've, I've heard you, Chris, say that participants are the North Star. I was wondering if you could maybe in closing just kind of talk us through how that underpins the approach at Genomics England, both in the rare, rare disease and cancer that you focus on traditionally and, and then in the COVID work you're doing going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's one of the real strengths that Genomics England has built over the last few years. And it's fantastic to have that kind of muscle, so to speak, in in great shape as we go into a kind of crisis situation like COVID. Um, So we've been working closely with the participants over um, the last few sort of weeks and months to work through some of the impacts of of COVID and some of the opportunities uh, for further research. I think the, the sort of founding point is is their data and it's their opportunity. Um, so I, as I think you would have heard me talk about before, the, the participants actually sit on our access review committee. Um, they are part of the decision-making about what um, what we're using the data for. And, in, and Gillian, who's the chair of the participant panel, is fantastically uh, powerful on this in saying, you know, their voice is saying to us, do more and do it faster and, and while doing it safely and doing it appropriately. Um, but what they're absolutely not saying is, um, you know, t- take our data and keep it in a sort of dark storeroom where no one gets to look at it. What they're saying is use it because either I or my child um, or my family member needs um, needs a cure. And the only way that we can get that cure is to get that sort of clinical return on data that we get through uh, collaboration with academia, collaboration with industry um, within these um, within these kind of channels, these guidelines. The COVID crisis has given us um, both a need and an opportunity to update a lot of our uh, infrastructure, for example. And we've been working very closely with the participant panel about how we do that, which will which will be a great news for the for our research collaborators. And what we've also been able to do is link the COVID status uh, data that's reported by uh, Public Health England with the genomic data um, of the hundred thousand participants. Um, so that we will be um, including the 100,000 participants as an element of this COVID response work um, as well, you know, working very much hand in glove with them. I don't know, Rich, if you want to add any more specifics on that. I think that's right. And even one of the things that's really useful for us um, is having participants who are really engaged in our program. And, and we can literally have a dialogue about what we're thinking, sense check things. And that's that's really useful and, and to be challenged on it's interesting, the challenges most often come from why are you being you know, cautious in this way? Well, there's a tendency for, um, I think, medics and scientists often to be a bit uh, maternalistic or paternalistic about things and saying, no, no, we ought to, ought to be cautious. And the sort of, Chris is sort of lock the data in a dark room metaphor. There's a real danger of that. Being challenged on um, being progressive is really healthy and, and it's a great thing to, to, to have that link to the participants. Just a final word on the participants is that particularly as we get running with the genomic medicine service in kind of live operation, um, we're also working with the participants in partnership with NHS England and Improvement on what that next chapter looks like for patient and participant engagement, because the 100,000 was a thing, um, whereas the genomic medicine service and the associated research uh, projects that will come up through that, um, we need to make sure that we're continuing to sort of build on and use this muscle kind of going forward as well. 
Absolutely. I mean, it seems like there's a real culture of uh, trust and mutual respect that it's built on top of, right? That they're um, the, the participants are equal members of the Genomics England strategy, and that's that's a very powerful force because it allows you to bring both the scientific aspect, but also the lived experience that the that the participants have. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm just conscious of time here. I know you all have a, uh, a battle against COVID to fight. So uh, maybe just in closing, I wanted to give you both a chance to just share um, if there's if there's anything you're looking for, whether it's partners, critical roles you're hiring for, or, or even just your website or Twitter, if people want to follow you to keep track of your work. Well, the big one is volunteers. Uh, Richard, tell, tell people how they can volunteer and who we're looking for. <laughs> so if people go to our website, you can just Google Genomics England or Genomics England COVID. You'll find our website. You'll be able to read more about the program. People can also register their interest. There's a big big button to click on just to submit your interest. Uh, and then um, more more information will, will follow before people formally sign up to, to the research program. We'd love to, to have people contact us that way. Great. We'll share that out with the uh, with the podcast. Thank you both very much. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for all the hard work you're doing. I'm sure you're working at 150% right now if you weren't uh, already doing so before. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Okay. Great conversation. Great. Talk Cheers. to you soon. Bye. Bye.